Welcome to Beyond the Bio, a podcast that dives deep into our exceptional leaders at Bain and spotlights the incredible work they're doing. You can look up their bios online, but that only scratches the surface of who they are. On this podcast, we share the stories that show why our leaders are truly extraordinary. Joining me today is Jen Androsco, Executive Vice President of our Bain Advisor Network and Global Alumni Network. Jen joins us for a two-part series on Bain alumni, where we'll dive deep into the importance of staying connected and investing in our alumni community. Today, we're talking with Jen about her boomerang Bain journey, her time as a Navy pilot and how that shaped her life and career, and our alumni network and how we support Bain folks after they leave the firm. Jen, welcome. Happy to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Keith. Delighted to be with you. Now, Jen, we're way overdue to have this conversation. I know once upon a time we talked about an alumni podcast, and for now, we're going to have you on here, and we're going to put you in the hot seat for a minute. And we like to start by giving folks a sense of who they're listening to, and maybe starting early in their journey. Where did you grow up, and what were your plans as you started thinking about leaving home and going to school? Sure. I grew up in South Florida. I'm the youngest of four children, and I went to public high school in this small little community called Oakland Park, Florida, where I had the great fortune of having just a few wonderful mentors that guided me along my journey. I was a student who had excelled in math in middle school, and I circuitously just got it in my head that I was going to go to Duke University from a very, very young age. And that was driven by getting into the talent identification program as a seventh grader on the Duke main campus. And unfortunately, my family didn't have the money to go. And so I didn't go that summer, but I had some really dear friends that went and came back and regaled me with stories of how amazing the campus was and what a great learning experience it was. And being the stubborn redhead that I am, I just got it in my mind that I was (laughs) going to go to Duke and I set my sights on that. And again, I had some teachers that really invested me and, and helped me academically get there. Now, did you not get the memo that most people in the country are supposed to not like Duke? <laughs> well, you know, I know everyone loves to hate a winner. So that's just <laughs> how it goes, right, Keith? Now, fast forward, and unfortunately, you weren't in that program, but fast forward, you did end up at Duke. And so how did that come about? And how did you end up making that happen? Yeah, great. I was involved in a lot of student leadership activities in high school. My favorite teacher in high school taught government and economics, Chip Shealy, wonderful mentor. And I ultimately applied to Duke Early Decision. Again, I was really um, excited about going there and was admitted but I didn't get enough financial aid and didn't have the money to go to Duke. And so I started looking for ways to pay for school. I was one of four children in college at the time. So you can imagine what that looked like for my folks. And I found out that if you decided to go into the Navy, they would give you a full tuition, books and fees scholarship to go to Duke. And so I was 17 when I left for school and I went on a ROTC scholarship, a Navy ROTC scholarship. Now, did you have anyone in your family that was in the military? We had a couple of other guests on that were military families or they moved around a lot. And that doesn't sound like your journey. It wasn't my journey. I had always been fascinated with aviation as a young child. We lived near an executive airport and I remember going and watching airplanes take off and land. I had been really excited about space and the prospect of becoming an astronaut. And so while it wasn't an expected course of action kind of given my childhood, it wasn't that far-fetched either given the things that I'd been interested in in my journey. So you go to Duke, and I know from checking online and doing my homework that you majored in political science. What was the plan coming out of Duke? I mean, you had the military commitment, of course, but some people think they're going to stay forever, and some people are like, let me do this and get on with it. What was your plan and your vision? 
Yeah. At the time, again, a young, young person, not really understanding sort of what the the ways of the world were. I always knew once I joined the Navy that I wanted to do, I would say, the most fun thing that you could do in the <laughs> Navy. And as a woman, that was certainly becoming a pilot. So I, I knew I wanted to be an aviator. I knew I wanted to be a pilot. And that was really what I set my sights on at Duke. You have to perform well academically to be selected for the aviation program. And I didn't think that I would stay career Navy. I majored in political science because I'd always been interested in leadership and how organizations work and candidly thought that I might end up in public service one day. Again, Mm -hmm. I think a strong indication of the influence that my high school teachers had had on me. Great. And so you do that, you graduate. I imagine you get commissioned. Did you go right into flight school? I got selected for flight school right away. Actually, my fun little quip here is I went for like 10 years of my life without ever being unemployed. So I was commissioned on the 14th, graduated from Duke on the 16th of May, and then I was employed, I say, (laughs) two days before I graduated. Flight school was really backed up at the time, and so I had the great fortune of heading out to Monterey, California, to the Naval Postgraduate School there as a newly commissioned ensign to earn an accelerated master's degree while I waited for my slot in flight school. Right. And I particularly appreciate how humble you are because you just sort of glossed over and said, well, you know, I had some free time, so I picked up a master's degree. That's essentially what you said, right? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) So you go to flight school and you start your career as an aviator. And what was that like? Was it what you had expected? Did you meet some great people? Did you see great parts of the world? Talk a little bit about that experience for those who may not be familiar with what that entails. Yeah, flight school in the Navy is I think quite candidly, like the greatest training and education that a human can receive. Everything from having to learn massive amounts of information in a very compressed period of time. I think about my MBA was actually quite easy relative to sort of aviation pre-flight indoctrination, what's expected of us to learn. From that to learning about survival, evasion, resistance, and escape through SEER school, and then the process of learning in your fleet squadron. And I think what's unique about the, the Navy is that you you're always learning. Actually, I think it's a lot like Bain in that way, in that you are always learning. You're always getting different certifications and qualifications in the aircraft. The same holds true for surface warfare officers, submariners, and special forces as well. You're always working toward that next certification or safety rating, et cetera. I had the great fortune of working with some incredible leaders, both in the U.S. Navy and also had the opportunity to work at one of NATO's two strategic headquarters, where I worked for a three-star Canadian general who was an exceptional leader and really a very important part of my personal learning journey. Now, I always get curious when I hear people had long careers in the military. Where were you deployed? Would you mind talking about that or is that something you can share? Sure. I was on active duty during the global war on terror. So I was actually reporting for the fleet replacement squadron on September 11th. The fleet replacement squadron, for those who aren't familiar, is where an aviator learns their specific aircraft that they're going to then go fly in the fleet. So that was, as you can imagine, just an extraordinary kind of experience, surreal experience, I would say, just to be arriving to the fleet at a time when our country was under attack. And so I spent the next three and a half years with my fleet squadron 
Squadron, Patrol Squadron 10 out of Brunswick, Maine. And I deployed three times supporting the global war on terror. I flew the P-3 Orion, which is a maritime patrol and reconnaissance aircraft. We fly with the standard crew of 11. And we do both counter submarine operations as well as intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. So we were supporting the battle groups that were transiting and conducting naval operations in and around the Gulf. So I deployed to Sigonella, Italy and Suda Bay, Crete in that deployment. We then also did a split deployment to Rota, Spain, where we were doing armed support for battle groups transiting through choke points. And then I did a counter-narcotics tour down in South and Central America. That is truly amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And for veterans that are listening to this episode, we do have a very active Veterans at Bain group and community inside Bain, of which Jen is a part of. Jen, after what sounds like a really adventurous and successful run in the military, you make the decision to leave the military and go back to business school. Again, I'm going to ask, was that something that just came about? Did you have mentors that helped you make that decision? Or did you just sort of get to a point in your life where you said, I should do something different? And I would add that you had been effectively out of undergrad for almost a decade at this point, which is a lot longer than a lot of folks who go back to business school. Yeah, that's right. I was reaching what we call the minimum service requirement when you essentially have paid back your obligation to the Navy for earning your wings. And I was at a decision point of, do I stay on and continue in my Navy career? Or do I do something else? And it was not a foregone conclusion of going to get my MBA. I think I suffered a lot from imposter syndrome as I was applying for my MBA. I'm not sure if I was qualified, if I would get accepted. I remember studying for the GMAT, you know, in the evenings, getting home from work and feeling like, gosh, you know, is this really the right thing for me? I was incredibly fortunate that I had a great group of women that I had stayed really closely in touch with out of Duke that were not in the Navy all of whom had pursued some advanced degrees. One of my friends had gone to Harvard Business School, and she really served as a sounding board for me. Also, General Mazenev, who was the three-star that I spoke about, served as a great mentor for me and helping me think about the different potential career paths. So when I applied for my MBA, candidly, I wasn't sure if I would go. I said, well, let right. me apply, kind right. of see where I get in. But I have backup options of like real jobs if I uh, <laughs> don't get into school. It felt like a lot to take on in terms of financial burden at the mm -hmm. time. And so I said, let's see how this goes. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you talk about the financial burden, because I do think a lot of people have this perception that people had a pretty easy ride. And you had already talked about choosing to go the ROTC route to make sure the cost of college was within reach. And you're still in that situation here. Now, where did you end up deciding to go and how did that come about? Yeah. So I attended Darden, the University of Virginia's business school, an extraordinary program. And how I ended up at Darden was really threefold. First, I was living in Virginia at the time. I'd been based down in Norfolk, Virginia, so it was close to home. Mm -hmm. Darden has an incredible veterans outreach program, and I joined a class where we had 30 veterans in Jeez. my class, which was pretty great. And actually, Keith, I don't think you know this, but in my start class at Bain, Bain Atlanta, well, I know we're going to get there, but there were four of us from Darden and three of us were veterans, actually. <laughs> so a very veteran, strong start class at Bain. So Darden had a great veteran outreach program. And then I was really fortunate when I received my acceptance letter, which 
in and of itself, I was like, oh gosh, I got in. How great. I found out that I had been selected as a finalist for a really prestigious fellowship at Darden called the Jefferson Fellowship. And that really just sort of changed my life. I had ultimately was awarded that fellowship as one of two fellows in my class. The other fellow actually was a veteran as well and came to Bain, Ray Lamas. And it just opened up so many opportunities for me and really was an incredible way to attend Darden. And so that's how I ended up there. Just a series of fortunate events. I felt really blessed. Let me ask you maybe a little bit off script here, but where were you in your life journey at that point? Because you had presumably established a career, as you said, you had skills, you could have taken them to the private sector as a pilot, potentially, or done something else or scratch that itch in government or foreign relations. What was it like making the decision to sort of go back to school? Because that's not something everybody does or takes lightly. Yeah. That's true. And yet it was very probably, if I can look back now and say it was actually the very natural next step for me. My Clifton Strengths Finder, my number one strength by a long shot is learner. I am just someone who is like a continuous learner and I'm always sort of pushing my own learning and growth and development. So I think probably was a natural step for me. It was really overwhelming at the time, right? To be early 30s, I I could do the math, but and thinking about going back to school and getting into those habits. Again, because I'd gone to PG school and then gone to flight school, I'd never really gotten out of like the, hey, you're always learning and developing because the Navy forces you to do that in ways probably that doesn't exist in like broader corporate America. Now, how did you hear about consulting? Because on the back end of Darden, you did come to Bain, but so far we are, I don't know, 15 years into your life story and consulting and business have never come up yet. So something changed. What was it? Yeah. Again, I went to Darden thinking that I would move back to Norfolk and I would take a job in in Norfolk. And I really wasn't going to explore really like new career opportunities. I very much went wanting to learn the content of what you learn in business school, because I felt like that was a part of my skill set that was not as robust. I was pretty naive about what happens in business school with the recruiting, et cetera. And so I landed at Darden and, you know, almost immediately this world of opportunity, these career paths that I didn't even know candidly existed. Now, I had friends from Duke who had gone into consulting and friends who had gone into investment banking, but I just really hadn't grasped what that meant or that that was actually a possibility for me. I didn't really realize like, hey, you can go to your and get your MBA and have fundamentally just like this whole new career. But you get introduced to career paths very quickly in business school, as you know. And I met some great Bainies, the class ahead of me, Adam Duggins and Eric McDermott, who has since passed some great Darden Bainies that were great role models for me and mentors. Um, Adam was a Jefferson Fellow as well, and he helped Mm -hmm. to take me under his wing and got exposed to sort of what all the potential opportunities through consulting could be. Candidly, I was looking at both consulting and general management. Most of the vets at, at Bain, you know, were either consulting or general management seemed to be a pretty logical track for them, at least through Darden. Any other big highlights from your Darden experience? 
I can't let Darden go by without calling out my mentor, John Colley. He is a legend at Darden. He passed away recently, and you could talk to generations of Bainese, and they would know who John Colley was, just an epic leader and developer of people and networkers. And also, just I think the big thing for me at Darden was I met my husband <laughs> there. I probably should <laughs> mention that. My husband, Joe, we met there, and now I ha- we have three beautiful children together. So yes, lots of other things I could mention. We could spend the whole time talking about Darden. That's probably for another day, Keith. So Jen, post-Darden, I already mentioned before the break that you joined Bain and you joined Bain Atlanta. Let's talk a little bit about your Bain journey before we get into what you're doing now at Bain. You had done some really great things and you had been a leader in the military. And, and frankly, as much as you mentioned imposter syndrome before, you were one of a few people, and my guess is even fewer women in the world, that were, were doing what you were doing. But you joined Bain and you immediately sort of feel like a fish taking to water or are things a little bit different than that? It definitely was not a fish to water immediately. There were, you know, a couple of partners that were key to my journey getting to Bain, Bill Carter and Laura Miles, and they were great mentors to me. But again, coming from the military where you are in a leadership role and going into consulting as a C1 where you're initially an individual contributor, there were certainly moments of frustration, both with myself in terms of, hey, learning sort of the consulting skill set, but then also feeling like, gosh, I have so much to give and I don't necessarily feel like right now I'm able to sort of demonstrate my full self on a case. As I've learned, that's just trusting the process, right, Keith? Don't right. we say that at me? Trust the process. Um, <laughs> we, we have certainly, to. Yeah, that's right. It's come a long way. We have to. I mean, it, it is interesting because I think one of the things I've seen us get a lot better at in the last several years is not just meeting people where they're at, but putting them in a position to leverage their strengths for their own success. And I've seen a lot of veterans come in over my 27 years here. And I would say early on in that journey, the leadership skills, the people skills, the sort of overall sense of, of how to drive results is something that they have. And I don't know, 20 years ago, we'd say, yeah, but can you do PowerPoint? How are your Excel skills? And I think now we're sort of recognizing there's actually a full range of skills that can make people successful and, and we should lean into some of those things. So I'm glad we had started to sort that out when you got here a while ago. Well, and I think my case, my first case team makeup exemplified what you just spoke about. Keith, I'll tell you, I was on a case with Phyllis Yale, Dale Stafford, Richard Spady, Justin Doshi. And for those who are listening, I know those names don't mean anything, but what you and I know is those are humans who are just known at Bain for developing people. They are extraordinary at their work. Yes. Um, And so I think that had a lot to do with my own development. Yeah, and and I actually have worked with, I think, three of those four people. And Phyllis was a mentor and a trainer of mine when I was in the partner promotion window. Just phenomenal individuals who, I would say, exemplify the supportive culture that we have at Bain. Jen, you also, just continuing down the non-traditional path, didn't stay on the client-facing sort of consulting, general management consulting path for your whole career. Why did you make a change and do something a little bit different in Bain? Yeah. As you know, Keith, I transitioned out of the generous consulting path over to the results, what was called at that point, the results delivery practice, now known as our transformation and change practice. And I transitioned for two reasons. The first of which is I had the first of my three children at Bain at the time and was looking for an opportunity to come back in a non-client facing role. My husband was not able to move to Atlanta. And so we would have been living apart. And it was an incredibly exciting time to join the practice area. We were 
really just getting a ton of momentum around our new approach to transformation and change under the guidance of Patrick Latre. And there was a ton of appetite. It was extraordinarily entrepreneurial venture. And I had the opportunity to just build some new things at Bain & Company, which were so exciting. And also the opportunity to learn. And what I thought was really great about learning from Patrick is that he was someone with, that was an outside hire. And so kind of learning from how can we successfully integrate outside hires and sort of embed them in Bain's DNA, which is sort of a you know, a long tail here at Bain, right, as we move through some of the work that I'm doing with our advisors now and our expert and how we embed expertise in our casework today. I had a lot of exposure to what didn't work, right? We had some quick fails, but also what mm-hmm. worked really well. Mm-hmm. So, Jen, on the back end of that experience and building something that was, frankly, new, cool, innovative at the time we were building it inside Bain, you make the decision to leave Bain, which... I think at least half the guests on our podcast have decided to do at some point in their journey. We'll talk about coming back later, but you make the decision to leave Bain. And and why did you do that? And, And what were the factors that made that the right step for where you were in your life? Yeah. So I think important backdrop at the time was I was living in Charlottesville, Virginia. I was part of the Washington, D.C. office, but I was working remotely because my husband, Joe, his business is based here. And he's an also a professor of practice at the business school at Darden now. Mm -hmm. I got a call from an executive search recruiter who was recruiting for the University of Virginia to lead the Alumni Association, which is an independent 501c3 there. And we all get headhunting calls. And I took almost none because I was very, very happy in my job. But this one really pulled on my heartstrings because it was to serve my alma mater. And so I said, yes, I'll take a lunch. I'm not interested in the role, but I'm certainly happy to help you think through folks that might be good candidates. They got you with that? Seriously? They got me with that, right? So the the search was being run by Russell Reynolds, Kurt Mm -hmm. Harrison. Very convincing. Yep. Anyway, long story less long, it comes back a little bit to sort of my DNA of being very much a servant leader and sort of this notion of how can you contribute to your community and give back. And there was just an opportunity for me to make a very real difference at my alma mater, a place where I had a significant sense of debt and gratitude, having been a fellow and, and benefited so much from others' generosity. I told Richard Fleming, who was my boss at the time, who is the America's RPL for Transformation and Change, and we both cried at the time, and I couldn't have been more supported. Keith, it was honestly one of the hardest but best conversations of my professional Mm -hmm. career where Mm -hmm. Richard said, Jen, I hate to see you go, but I'm so thrilled for you. I have no doubt you'll be successful. I think that this will be a time box journey for you. And I hope when the time is right, you'll consider coming back to Bain. That really stuck with me. I stayed in close touch with several of my mentors at Bain and and that led to my journey back. So Jen, you just mentioned that you had your journey back to Bain and that like most of our guests who have done that, you kept in touch with your Bain family, even though you were away from Bain, which is pretty common from what I can tell. How did the opportunity come about to come back and what was the pitch? Did they just do what Darden did and take you to lunch and help you brainstorm candidates and then switch it up on you or or was there a different path there? Yeah, no, it was a very different path. I stayed in close contact with a number of my mentors at Bain, both talking with them when I had challenges, leadership challenges in my new role as president and CEO, utilizing sort of thought leadership and helping me think about my strategy 
And just through part of those conversations, started learning later on and kind of year three or so of the role three, learning about some opportunities at Bain. And I actually was in conversation about a return to Bain when I kind of call, courtesy of Courtney Delgava, to come back and help her with a transformation of the alumni program at Bain. And I laugh because Courtney also was, at one point in time, worked for Russell Reynolds, knew Kurt Harrison, who recruited me to UVA. She is a great seller, as you know, and she was very successful in pitching just a, a real tremendous opportunity to return to Bain. And I did feel like I had gotten accomplished what I had hoped to do at UVA and that this was just a unique opportunity to come back to Bain and have a real impact. And I was really focused on impact. Yeah. And I'm going to give a quick shout out to Courtney, one of the early guests on the podcast. And I think maybe she's on her, she was on her third go round with Bain when we talked and she's currently away doing great things. And who knows, maybe we'll have her back and back on the podcast in the future. What was the mission that Courtney and Bain sold you on when you came back? The mission was to go and turbocharge our alumni program to be best in class in the world. And we have a long history of supporting our alumni. What I'm doing isn't new to Bain. It's just the souped up turbocharged version of our alumni offering. And we were transitioning from the alumni program from our marketing department into our global human capital talent and leadership team. And that was the mission. And what are the main pillars of our approach and support that we provide to our alumni family? Yeah, we have a really robust set of offerings for our alumni, and it's really based on three things. First of all is to provide lifelong learning and knowledge resources for our alumni. The second is to provide connection and networking amongst our alumni population. And then third, and and certainly important, is to be there in the moments that matter for them in their career support and development. Right. And maybe you can give some examples to bring that to life to people, because I think a lot of us who have gone to school think of the alumni office as, one, the keepers of our email forwarding for life so that they can solicit financial contributions from you for the rest of your life. And I know from the work that you're doing, which is frankly freaking amazing, that you're not just sending newsletters to alumni, letting them know what's happening at Bain. That's right. Although that is certainly one thing that we do, right? right. That is a piece of what we do because we know we want the firm of today is not the firm that they left uh, years ago. And so we do want to educate them on the evolution of our expertise offerings. So an example of career development is we partner very closely with the Baines Career Advisory Services, where we offer both one-on-one coaching and services for our alumni, but we also partner with our clients and key partners that make sure that we have a robust job board that alumni I can tap into specifically for companies that are looking for consulting talent. We do a compensation study that helps individuals to know sort of am I on track with what might be expected for Bain. And then we have a a series of knowledge and learning series as well, where we're keeping alumni up to date on the latest insights that we're generating from our casework called In the Know, where we're highlighting some of Bain's thought leaders. And then on networking and connectivity, we both feature alumni and their incredible stories and journeys post-Bain, but we also have a digital engagement platform called Beyond Bain, which is where alumni themselves can connect with one another. We've recently just launched a sub-community as part of Beyond Bain for our founders. We already have hundreds of, of founders that have signed up to connect with one another and learn through shared experience. So those are just some great examples of some of the things that we're doing to keep our alumni close to Bain. 
Yeah, that's really amazing. And it sets a tone for the culture, I think, inside Bain. You know, a lot of us keep in touch with folks that we've worked with that have since moved on. But it's more than just those personal connections. You're providing a platform for those connections to thrive, but also make new connections, which is really unique. How is that different than some of the alumni organizations that you've either worked in or have been a part of? Because it feels like that's a little bit different than what we've seen elsewhere. Yeah, I, it is. I think we have one of the most robust um, alumni program and offerings. And actually, there's corporate benchmarking that occurs. There was an updated report that just came out last month on sort of the state of corporate alumni programs. And I think what's unique are three things. One, we have a platform to connect alumni, but we also, it is very personal. Alumni have a guardian that's responsible for maintaining their connection and those close ties with Bain and Company. And we also create communities within community for individuals to connect with one another, whether it's based on your last Bain office, which is really meaningful mm-hmm. when you're a new alum, or it's based on functional and industry networking, which is candidly much more relevant as you move right. on in your career, right? So those are some of the things I think that are, are unique to Bain, and also just the investment that we've made to make this program meaningful for our alums. Now, Jen, one of the things we're going to talk about in a few minutes is this notion of community and more importantly, communities within communities. And you had talked about your Bain experience and you talked a little bit about your time at Darden. But before we transition, I do want to ask you about communities within communities that you've been a part of. And maybe you can share a little bit for our listeners about that. Yeah, absolutely. As you know, I've, I've mentioned Babs Veterans at Bain, which I'm a member of and has been a, a huge part of my journey. And I think that would be naturally expected, as is our Women at Bain group. But I'm also a member of our Diverse Abilities at Bain community. I am the sibling of an adult disabled sister, and I can't speak enough accolades about the work that that community is doing and the level of support that it has provided both to me as an adult who is a family member who has an adult disabled sibling and the level of connection, support, shared resources that we provide. Again, Keith, this is about family and a Bainey never letting another Bainey fail. And that extends beyond just our professional environment, but ensuring that we have the resources we need at home so that we can bring our full selves to work. And I'm really excited a little bit of a sneak preview of actually building these communities within communities around affinity for our alumni as well. So hopefully stay tuned. We'll be launching some smaller communities for our alumni explicitly focused on those affinity groups because we know those connections are some of the most meaningful that individuals make while they're at Bain. Yeah, and Jen, I want to start to wrap us up here and just ask a little bit about the future. I think at some point down the line, we'll probably do a bunch of time capsule podcasts and unearth the recordings from years past to see if people's predictions were true. But for now, let's make some predictions or at least talk about the future. What are you excited about the work that you're doing with the alumni community at Bain and, and where it's heading? You know, as you look forward, what gets you jazzed to come into work every day and do the work that you're doing? Yep. Well, as we look forward, we always sort of reflect a little bit on the past. And and, and first of all, we're in our 50th anniversary at Bain & Company, right, this year, celebrating sort of tremendous accomplishments. So what I get really excited about is, one, 
the growth of our program and our offerings and right. that the connection that we're making with alumni. These communities within community, I think there is just a ton of potential as we think about, for example, connecting veterans at Bain post Bain. How can we support each other in that career journey? And also, how can we support individuals who are considering coming to Bain, right, and being role models and mentors for those individuals, as well as for Bainies that are thinking about their next journey? Because the reality is most Bainies don't stay a Bain through partner, right? That's not the journey. The other thing I'm really excited about is Bain is not just a generalist consulting firm anymore. We have a myriad of talent capabilities, our expert consultant delivery, and a lot of our new capabilities. And so building community for those professionals to connect and network with one another is a huge part of my focus area. The final thing I would say is we know that our talent is what really separate Spain from our competitors. And when we hire or rehire a former Bainey, a boomerang, if you will, there is so much value that is brought, both from a cultural perspective and hiring someone who knows the firm in terms of sort of what they bring back, deep knowledge that they're bringing from industry or functional expertise that they've developed while they're away. And I think it can be just a great force multiplier for us as we think about the future of our talent, bringing back rehires, if you will, to and company. And so being really thoughtful about how we support our local offices and our global functions and finding the right alumni to return to Maine is a pretty exciting work. Wow, that's really well said. And Jen, we are way overdue to have had this conversation and we've worked together and I learned some things about your background that I think I have no idea about. And so I want to thank you for coming on today. This was really awesome to talk with you. It's always so much fun to catch up with you, Keith. Thank you so much for having me today.